0: What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. What does it really mean for a leader to own their past, to have it change their future? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of Lynch with a Leader, where we sit down with another great leader, Dr. John Deloney, and find out not only his story, but how he has learned through these years to lead with his faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it is my honor to be your host your guide, uh, the guy who just gets to be blessed by sitting down with another incredible leader. And maybe through their life and through their story, you and I can pick up some nuggets that help us in our story. I am so glad you've joined me today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going on in your leadership. I don't know what's going on with your organization. But I do know this, what we're going to talk about today truly does affect the life of every leader. Today, our guest, Dr. John Deloney with Ramsey Solutions John has such an amazing background. Two decades in crisis response and senior leadership. He has two PhDs along the way. Now he's a national best-selling author. He's the host of the Dr. John Deloney show for Ramsey Solutions. But today he's our guest on Lynch with a Leader. When Dr. Deloney and I sat together uh, and had our episode recorded a few months ago. I was in a really, really tough space, just in one of those, we all get them, one of those grinds, one of those times that I was frustrated about some things and working through some things as a leader in my leadership. And this conversation hit me at just the right time. His book, Own Your Past, Change Your Future. I was able to just eat all the words in it because they were like life bread to me. So, so good. And uh, I think you're going to enjoy this episode. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life and leadership, but I know this, there's something for you today. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Dr. John Deloney. John, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to
1: have you. It's an honor to be here, Mike, and I'm grateful for the space you've provided for me, man. Thank you.
0: Man, you know, I I love people like you who've packed a lot of life into their story. And you've, <laughs> you've packed a lot of life into your story growing up in Texas. Take, take us back a little bit into john's life growing up when you were growing up who did you think you were going to be and what did you think you were going to do
1: oh geez um dad was a homicide detective and a swat hostage negotiator for houston police department and so he was a bad dude and he also volunteered at with the youth at our church which was about 700 to a thousand people which back then was, was huge and um my mom was just because of the the faith community she grew up in was not allowed to go to school. They, she was told that uh, women have one singular job and there's no reason to go to school. And so she um, graduated high school, started working, married my dad. And two, two major shifts in my childhood. Um, one is about halfway through. So maybe middle schoolish. My dad, um, the, the youth minister left at our church and um, they asked him, Hey, would you want this job? And he, quit over a weekend and took it um almost sight unseen and uh, i think he'd probably come back and tell you i don't know about that but that's what he did right yeah um and then the second one is my mom at the age of 42 got up the courage um and my dad had been um you know championing this for a long time but she got up the courage to take one community college class down the street from us there in Houston. And then the next semester, she took another one. And the next semester, she took another one. And ultimately at 57 is when she graduated. I think 57 when she graduated with her PhD. And she was became a professor shortly thereafter at a university there in Texas. And then she became the department chair. At, and at 72, she just stopped being the department chair. So here's the two major takeaways I had in life. One is when there's a problem, when something's on fire, when somebody's firing a gun, you go in, Mm. your job is to go be a part of a solution, whatever's going on, whether it's in your community, whether somebody needs you in the middle of the night, you show up. And the second one is age is nothing. You can change anything at any time. Mm. And so when I was, uh, my whole career has been working in education. I was a high school coach and teacher for a few years. And then I was a, I've been working in the universities for, for almost 20 years and so taking a left turn to be as my 12 year old son says dad you're just a youtuber now right so to take that left turn and, and start a radio show um to my buddies we're like what are you doing and for me it just it wasn't even a it, it was no concern at all it's like ah this will be fun and so those two major uh things have been uh, foundational pillars to how I live my life and so when you say like what do you want to be I thought I was going to be in the FBI. Um, I thought I was going to be a psychologist. I thought I was going to be a baseball player for most of my life. Um, I ran track in college. I thought I was going to run. I I, I just had all these lofty ambitions um, and just kind of followed my nose.
0: As your parents raised you, and you said you've got a 12-year-old at home, as your parents raised you, what did they do most right when it came to your faith piece? You know, I think so many times we look at our parents and we we see their faith, but maybe their faith doesn't influence us and we go our own way. But you sort of chose a track and got in that track. How did their faith and how did their faith journey
1: influence yours? In two profound ways. And of all the interviews I've done in the last few years, no one's ever asked me that question. I think it's a great question. Um, when my dad took the job as pastor at this church, we were all going to, we'd been there forever. It's a, it was a legacy church. We'd been there for 20 years. Uh, he had been there for 20 years up until he took this job. I'll never forget. And I was maybe 10 or 12, something like that. He took me out for a lot for lunch or something. And he said, now that I am the, your minister, you're not going to be able to hear me. And so I want you to find other men in this building that you can talk to and that you trust. And if you can't find it here, you can go to any church in our local community and I'll support you. Now, he was an old Church of Christ pastor, which back in the 90s, if you didn't go to a Church of Christ, you were just signing up to burn in hell for eternity, right? That was the. So I didn't understand how, what a gift of grace and Mm. what a gift of wisdom that was until decades later to think. Oh, he put his job on the line to look at me in the eye and say, I don't care where you find Jesus. I don't care how you find him, but make sure you find him. And I don't care what building you walk into, find him and um, or put yourself in a position to be found. It's probably Mm. a better way to say that. Mm. Um, The second one is my mom. So my mom used to when I was a kid. And again, she has no college education. She's a high school. The big thing back in the 90s and in the late 80s and early 90s was the New Age movement. Right. And there's always a new thing that's going to take over (laughs) and and end faith. And back then it was the new age movement. So my mom would go to the school board and speak out against things like Madam Lang, like Madam Langle books, who happens to be a Christian writer. Right. But these anything to do with, um, you know, magic or anything Mm -hmm. like that, she would have been the chief Harry Potter complainant back in the day. And then she ends up going to college, learning, reading new things, having great mentors. And now she is a mythology professor at a very well-known faith-based university. And so what she now does is sits down with 18-year-olds and says, hey, there's 20,000 flood narratives across different cultures. Here's why I wake up. Here's my, my favorite quote from her. I said, mom, you know, there's all these different stories about different saviors throughout time and different Bible stories that we hang on to that show up in other cultures and that have nothing to do with it. Why do you still go to church? And she said, you're not going to like my answer. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, every day I wake up and decide I'm going to believe this. Hmm. And as a 25 year old, I was like, that's bull crap. You got to have science and back <laughs> until I've come to realize, I don't know how physics works or a Tesla works. And so I'm just choosing to believe in that too. Right. So all I have to say is this number one, don't stop searching and keep looking for it. And my kid's faith is not, is going to be different than mine. It has to be because the world they grow up in is they got a different cultural frame. And two, don't be afraid of doubt and questions. Mm. Um, In fact, seek them out because if you can't reconcile them, then you have no business saying, I'm going to, that's like saying, I don't know, I don't really know my wife that well, but I'm just going to suck it up and get married anyway. Mm. Man, no, get to know your wife. And if something doesn't, Jive, ask questions and continue to, to want to know deeply and to ask hard things, have seasons of frustration and doubt. And that's a part of of the journey. And those two gifts were really extraordinary. For me. Yeah, that's powerful. And, and
0: it plays so much into your story. You know, right. you even go back to that framework of always run in always run towards the gunfire and right. you've really spent your life <laughs> yeah, running, run toward, running towards the gunfire of people's right. stuff. Right. Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, you're not a, you're not an officer, but you might as well be because oh, you're I've been in some in.
1: dicey situations before. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Where I've even thought I probably shouldn't be here right now. Yeah.
0: Golly. And, and you go, you know, and I, I remember hearing somebody say years ago, you know, we just, uh, our life isn't a compartment, you know, compartments, it's like a bowl of, of soup and everything's yeah. just sort of grown in and it's all jumbled up as you look at who you are today how important is it for you and how important is it for others to not only know their past and this really gets into your book but to own their past I think most of us go well yeah that's all in my background but it really doesn't matter but you say you not only got to know it but you got to own it Why, why is it so important
1: so this, the big aha moment for me um, came when I was, again, I was working to get well, and I was working at a university that just gave everybody a free graduate class every semester. You have to take any class for free. They give you one for credit. And so I started taking graduate counseling classes, one, for my students, because they were increasingly coming to me with mental health challenges. And two, I want to know what happened to me. I want to know what happened to my wife and my marriage and my friends' marriages that were dissolving. I just want to know was going on. And as I got deeper and deeper down a rabbit hole into the trauma literature, and so this isn't woo-woo, and this isn't like spiritual jump up and down and do jumping jacks. This was neuroscience and physiology, that your brain puts a pen, if you will, um, like a GPS pen, in traumatic moments throughout your life. And it is 24-7, 365, scanning the environment for things that might kill it, that might make tomorrow not possible right and so much so that when you're in an anxious situation smoking will help you so it knows hey cigarettes will make you calm and this is going to kill us later but tomorrow we'll be okay and so it will even do short-term things to keep you okay in the present that we're going to be detrimental to you longer yep. right so when right. i started realizing oh man this and i'm just going to pick this isn't my situation but any any kid's situation if you were a child and dad's car driving up the driveway, you knew I sh- I'm just going to get real small. I'm going to disappear or I'm going to just close the door in my room because I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen. I, I'm tired and I don't want to say the wrong thing that's going to set dad off. Or he comes home in a bad mood. Your body listens for cars up driveways. Mm. Your body listens for, oh, that door just opened. And where that's hard is then you get married to somebody And you love being in the room with them, but that car drives up the driveway and you immediately slink into the shadows. And this was, this is our case, right? So on Sunday afternoons, uh, my wife knew like, that's dad's time. You don't go in the living room. He's on the couch, whatever. And um, I would come home on Sundays from church and be like, Hey, let's watch football whatever. And she would instantly pull away a little bit, which. Pulling away from me was a, a childhood signal of rejection. Yep. They don't want to be around you, which then I try to solve with more volume and more energy and like, oh, ah, let's get even closer to which she responds to. Ah, get me away from <laughs> further. And now our childhood body that's trying to mm. keep us safe, those things that kept us safe when we were kids are now messing up our relationships in the present. And so the idea that um, I don't believe that you have to go back and dig through every memory and you don't have to do that but you do have to own how your body responds in the present to things it's trying to protect Mm -hmm. you from in the past. And for most people, that is looking back saying, I love my parents, but man, they screwed this up. Or if I said the wrong thing, mom flew off the handle and I was responsible for the emotional regulation of the adults in my house. And as a seven-year-old, that was not my job. Mm -hmm. That was my mom's job and she didn't do it. And so now, I find myself trying to people-please my boss. I'm always saying yes to things that I don't have time to do. I've made my life about making sure everybody around me is okay. I gotta stop doing that. And Mm -hmm. that goes back to saying, where did that even come from? Ah, that came from here. And I'm gonna own that 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 happened to me. And then in the present, I'm gonna say, what am I gonna do now to begin to heal from that? Because if we don't, man, we're gonna pass that on to our kids and then they're gonna be about solving the middle school problems and the high school problems and they're gonna find themselves in a big mess.
0: And the crazy part is, it doesn't matter what title is on your email signature and it doesn't Shoot. matter your age no, man. of what, of what you've got. Well, you know, so I'm 53, so yeah. I've gotten to 53. Well, I won't have to deal with that anymore. I'm I'm past 50. You know, I'm, I'm past those years, man, that stuff just doesn't go away. And you did such a great job in the book. You began talking about a, a, a pain point in your life when you and your wife had bought a house and you started seeing cracks in the wall. And I'm telling you, man, yeah. that, that was so good because you began to see cracks. Everybody else told you was okay. We're okay. But you couldn't get past that. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Cause I think every leader has those cracks
1: in some point of their life. That's right. So one of the most powerful findings I found in the psychological literature of the last hundred years is that when your body detects that there's nobody with you, when you're alone, when you're lonely, And lonely can be proximal, meaning I don't have any people around me. I live out in the woods or emotional loneliness. And I don't know about you, but I have spent years, literally, sharing a bed with a woman who I know loves me. And I felt completely alone. I've sat at a table with leaders who I love, that I'm working with, that I trust, that we're on the same mission together. And I'm completely like, you guys have no idea what's going on inside of me right now pastors, coaches, they are, they, they live this more than anybody. I'm standing up in front of a group of young men or young women trying to get them rallied up to go run through a brick wall and beat this other team. And they don't know the doubt inside of me. They don't know that my marriage is a mess. They don't know that I haven't seen my kids in four weeks and I'm exhausted. Right. So this idea of loneliness, it goes all the way back. So if it, man, if you and me were, uh, in the woods, back you know, with our tribe in, let's say, um, what what city are you in right now? I'm in Atlanta. Okay, so we're in Atlanta, 2,000 years ago, and you and I uh, and our tribe are, are camping out in in the in a field, and they we all get up and leave, and you wake up, and we've left you. You are probably going to die. Someone's going to eat you. You're going to get exposed. You're going to not be able to find food. You're going to get eaten by bugs or whatever. And so your body has a very loud alarm system. The alarms are anxiety. The alarms are OCD. The alarms can even be depression. It will start getting your attention that says, hey, you are all you've got. And you sleep a little bit shallower because you've got to be alert. And when you sleep shallow, then you don't get that deep restored sleep. And then all of a sudden, your body starts to take a nosedive. You start to see things that aren't there Mm. when your body realizes you're alone. So I look around at our current culture right now, and they're coming for us. They're trying to attack us. They're trying to take our way. It, I'm, re, I'm seeing in big neon letters, we have a culture of people who are completely and totally lonely yep. and their brains and eyeballs and bodies are seeing threats everywhere because that's how we're designed, but they're not real. And so going back to the cracks, I had the great job. I had a, I had my wife and I were making money that my granddad who just worked at Houston Power and Light couldn't have wrapped his head around. Um, we've been trying to have kids for four years and it wasn't happening for us. And all of a sudden Hank comes along, my oldest <laughs> And, um, we are cruising and I'm, we buy a new house. And again, I'm in a bunch of debt. I got a bunch of student loan debt. I've got a house note now. Um, and I start seeing like foundation, like I think the foundation's cracking on me and I would bring contractors over. I'd bring friends (laughs) over and they're like, bro, you're fine. Your house is great. I was like, oh, y'all don't see it, right? And then this isolation spiral starts and not being able to sleep at night start, which it makes my anxiety worse. And now all of a sudden you're in the the, the anxiety spiral that's just so hard to get out of. Um, and I found myself, I, the, the the book turns on a moment when I called a friend who was a college roommate who I would trust with anybody in my family. He's the executor of my will. And he came down, him and his wife and his new baby came down and he looked, walked through the house with me and we stood out on my on my driveway. And I didn't know that my wife had called him. And said, Mm. I'm really worried about John. And uh, he said, hey, uh, your house is fine. And I don't want to hear this again. I don't want to have this conversation ever again. Your house is fine. And that was the first time I thought, hmm, maybe it's me. You know Mm. what I mean? Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm seeing something that's not there.
0: Why is it so hard to admit that, though? Why is it so hard? Because you you see it.
1: You see it. You, you, You see it. And more importantly, uh you feel it Mm, so i got to where my i I remember laughing a few times because my body was responding to things like a like a settling crack above a door my body would respond as though somebody was outside with a hatchet trying to break in i i I there's a couple times i remember laughing like what are you doing what is why is my body spinning up like this and it had attached uh like a settling crack in somebody's sidewalk as financial ruin for you and your family. I don't know how it made that gap probably cause it was 2009 or 10. We were coming out yeah. of that big mess, but your body will link it up and it will connect stories to other stories. And then all of a sudden you're trying to solve problems that are not the problem. Right. Um, we run around and try to solve anxiety. We try to solve those Man, and if you will heal your body, it will turn the alarms off, you know, yourself. itself.
0: That's so good. You made a, qu- a quote in there. You said cracks are a sign, not a cause.
1: Yeah, that man. Is they're, a just a, they're just a powerful statement. They, the crack just lets you know your foundation's shifting yep. or your crack lets you like, same with anxiety, man. Um, I don't know if I talk about it in this book, maybe in the other one, but all anxiety is, it's like a smoke alarm in your kitchen. Mm. That's it. And in our current, Mental health landscape. Whenever we're anxious, we race up there and try to take the batteries out of the smoke detector, or we get up there with a with a pillow and we duct tape around it, um, like we're like making the alarm quieter solves yeah. the fire that's burning our house down, right? And so we got cracks are a, a sign. My my heart beating faster. That warmth in my stomach. My frustration. My anger. My anxiety. Those are just our body's way of getting our attention to, hey, what's really going on
0: here? I was in a group of leaders yesterday, so I host some spiritual leadership groups of leaders in our community. And one of the guys yesterday was talking about, you know, I try to work between 1 and 3 a.m. when I get my kids to bed because at work I am spread so thin and I'm on call all in the, and he's in the education world yeah. uh at a very very high level and he and he's like man i need to get it. and i was telling him about the book and i said man sleep sleep is such a big deal and it's i number said john one. hits this number yeah to so yeah. talk about that a little bit because i think every leader resonates with yeah really i don't sleep that well anymore i used to sleep like a log man i could sleep till 9 or 10 a.m now i toss and turn all night talk about that a little bit why it's so important to your
1: body. Um. This comes from the great work. I think everybody should read the book, um, Why We Sleep by Mm. Dr. Matthew Walker. It's a masterpiece. Um, But ultimately, two two important things. One, there's been some research that that I I believe proves causality between a lifetime of a lack of sleep or sleep deficiency and dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm. And so we come from the late 80s and 90s and even before a flexing A, will sleep when I'm dead. Ronald Reagan, um, Margaret Thatcher, like some of the big world leaders, we'll sleep later. Right now we got work to do. And 100% of them end up with some sort of dementia, right? Mm -hmm. Just that ethos. The second thing that was really convicting for me was zero, none. There is not a single psychiatric illness that does not include disordered sleeping. And we used to think that if you got really anxious or really depressed, that over time it screwed up your sleep. And now what there's, the, the research is suggesting that's flipped. You stop sleeping. You stop getting all of your deep sleep and your REM sleep and your good cycles because we're watching another, another Netflix series. We're working till 2 a.m. We're going, we're going, I got to make this call. I got to do this thing. I got to do this thing. Now that the kids are in bed, now is when I start my two hour clock of just me time or my wife and I are going to be intimate for an hour and then I'm going to go read for a while and then I'm going to go work out right whatever I got to try to cram into my day man you're not getting that restorative sleep and very quickly your body starts to go hey we're not okay we're not okay we're not okay we're not okay and it's going to start trying to get your attention and the basically the wheels start falling off the car and so um a hundred percent at workout programs. I'm trying to, I want to get back in shape. I want to fix my marriage. I want to heal from depression, anxiety, some of these heavy things. I want to get my career back. Number one on my list, 100% of the time is you got to make sleep a, the number one priority in your life, closely followed by relationships. That's the second one. How did but- you...
0: How did you fix your, no, I'm sorry. How did you fix your sleep? So here you are hard charging, hard driving guy. How did you get that personally? Well, so
1: I was on, when I was training mixed martial arts, so I did that for, for years and I would get home from work and then practice started at eight o'clock and you'd, we'd basically fight other people until 10 o'clock. Right. And then I'd get home and then my body's still pretty wound up, even though we're exhausted, it's spun up. So I had a buddy whose wife was a nurse practitioner and she had this magic pill called Lunesta. Mm. And then that was then Ambien. Right. And it, what I've come to learn is those are hypnotics. So the difference is I can hit you in the head with a baseball bat and you'll be unconscious for eight hours. That is not sleep. And what those things do is they make you unconscious. They don't let you sleep. And so I took those things almost nightly Mm. for seven, eight years and I didn't realize that I was depriving my body of sleep for seven or eight years. And so there's no wonder. So first was getting off that nonsense. Second was, what is my what how am I building my life? Right. And with where Andrew Huberman's work, when I like good night sleep starts in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Going out and sitting out in the sunshine and letting your body relax a little bit and letting your natural brain processes begin to wake up. It also means that I've got to be really diligent about screens before bedtime, about an hour and a half out. I've been on call for for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year for 20 years in my higher ed job. Um, I know how hard that is. So I had to create on-call systems and I had to have other people answer the phone and you only call me if there's, right? So it went from being woke up every night or every other night to once a week or once every mm-hmm. two weeks, right? I had to figure out ways to do that. And what that was, was it was me sacrificing I need to be at every single thing and flex on that. I need to, every decision's got to come through me. And that means I'm a poor leader. I'm not training up people to be good leaders beneath me and or side by side with me, really. And so I had to surrender my Deloney rules everything. And I had to make sleep a priority. That meant that um, I couldn't spend 45 minutes in the shower that meant that i had to work out in the morning and get up early. i mean i had to change basically my whole life. i had to get off that stuff. i have a a, a pretty solid uh 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 supplement regimen that i keep to and man, i tell you what. now i can it's past 9:30, man. i can't move my body. i'm i'm out, right? and it's been a beautiful transition for me. That's so good, man. And i i think you speak in that opening that part up.
0: You speak to every leader because i think there is a there's like a gold star. We feel like we get right. There's yeah. a gold star for always being on call and always being available.
1: And I, you know, you know, we get, that's, Hey, that's such a leadership failure. It is it, absolutely. It's a, it's a leadership. It's a, it, we're communicating to the young leaders that are with us. It's poor communication to our, the parents and students who were serving like when I was in education, it is a poor steward to our customers to, to not have boundaries. Yeah. Um and, The one or two customers who scream and yell that they couldn't get me at 2 a.m., I honestly don't want them as my customer. Right. Because that's going to end up in a train wreck down the road. It's those that say, hey, I don't answer the phone after 10 o'clock because I'm with my family. Very, very few parents in my career have been like, that's ridiculous. As long as they can call security or they can call somebody on camp, right? And that's somebody else's job in that season. But, man, it is poor. It's a failure of leadership across the board. I can't believe that college presidents – I can't believe that executive pastors, if you will, put a hundred percent availability as a gold star because it's a choice to make your leadership team less effective. It's a choice to make the people who work for you and with you make their lives and their family lives more miserable. It's such a ridiculous way to lead. I totally agree with you. And, And the sad part
0: is I think so many leaders, they recognize it for others. But they don't yeah. do it for oh, themselves, yeah. you know. And then, like, they, then they, well, they go, "I'll, I'll just take them. it on myself."
1: That's yes. it. That's right. Yes. I, I
0: got me, you know. And yours was your training's always to run towards the danger, right? And my and my 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 unpacking through this book, just to be honest with you, is I just don't want to disappoint anybody. I don't want anybody. I didn't want to disappoint my mom and dad. I don't want to disappoint. Now I've been pastoring a church for 25 years, same church. I don't want to disappoint these people and all the leaders that I work with in our community. And, and therefore we tell everybody else the right thing, Mm -hmm. but yet sometimes I think we can find ourselves going, all right, there's some, there's some out of order things. You, you made a comment and it was really real quick
1: before we go there. You just touched on something that I think is so critical that we all, all leaders have to be careful of. And it's a very subtle but powerful identity shift. Because you get into ministry, you get into coaching, you get into these fields to lead people. And leadership requires accountability, it requires hard conversations, it requires getting in people's business, it requires grace and compassion, all those things. And after a while, what happens is we switch. It's a slow switch. Just think of a light switch turning from, I want to lead these people to, I don't want to disappoint. That's right. I don't want, I want to win this game To I don't want to lose this game. That's right. And when you make that switch, suddenly you're playing defense, not offense and you start couching. I need this. I need to speak this truth to my church, but I'm like, I can't say it all the way because I'm going to make some people upset or this people are going to leave or they're going to post about it on Facebook or, we need to get this guy in the game, but we've already man. We spent a ton of money recruiting this one, and he's the guy, and he's got a T-shirt. So let's go ahead. The moment you make that switch, your whole system, you're guaranteeing yourself you're going to disappoint people. 100. percent. You don't walk back from that because um, that's not a sustainable. You can't play defense right. in other games. Right? That's right. Well, I appreciate everybody. Listening. You have to play defense and win games. You can't only play defense. At some that, point, you got to shoot. Right. That's exactly right. And I, I'm just.
0: Happy that everybody got to listen in to my coaching session with you today. So (laughs) I'm glad we stuck a microphone in the middle of the room. This is like a a selfish lesson for me today. You 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 made a statement in the book. You said the stories we tell ourselves are powerful because we hear them in our own voice. Yeah, I've never heard anybody say it quite. Everybody has self stories, and we all get that. And especially in the athletic world, man, a kid stepping into the box, man, they're 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 saying something to themselves before they step into that box or before the quarterback gets under center, he's got something mentally going through his mind. Why, why hearing our story from ourselves and our own
1: voice, why does it mean even more to us? Because we're the smartest person that we know. And you've, you've probably read that research. It's, it's, it's hilarious, right? That 95% of people think they're better than average drivers. And that was the NFL one. it was 97% of NFL players think they're in the top two or three players on the team in terms of football awareness. Um, and the, my favorite one was more than half, no, nine, 70 or 80 or 90%. It was a high percentage believe they are less biased than other people, right? So they, they even got that wrong, right? So we hear our own voice as truth because it's really at the end of the day all we've got. And we also identify that voice that never shuts up, that just goes and goes and goes. It's always criticizing. What about this? What about that? What about them? Why are they doing that? We think that's us. We think that that is our voice, and it's not, it's a part of our brain that is just running and running and processing, processing, processing. And it was powerful when I realized oh, I could control that. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I don't have to let that, that tape just run 24, seven, 365 Cause it makes me nuts. Um, but it was backing out and looking at, okay, what, am, how am I talking to myself? And as a, as a leader, as a coach, especially, I've got two different stories that, that Mike, they haunt me and they came from coaches. One haunts me positively and one haunts me negatively mm-hmm. And teaching kids how to speak to themselves is one of the greatest gifts you can give them. Don't lie to yourself. Take ownership of how you're performing, how you've prepared. But man, be careful about the voices you, I mean, the the words you put in kids head, because your voice, you tell some kid, you suck at this, or you're not going to play for me, or you say something like that over time, your words become their words in their own voice. I can't do this. I'll never be able to make this. That job's not for me. I can't take that promotion. She's never going to marry me. And it becomes a generational legacy thing that you pass on to your kids and your grandkids. And so it's it's being hyper aware of that voice in our head because we trust ourselves. That's it. And, and you even hit me. You did such
0: a great job that unpacking the, the book. I mean, this is a book. Every leader, every leader's got to put this on the shelf and read Thank it you. because you hit it so hard, you know, that it, it's it's the guy getting ready to close the deal. And he goes back to, man, you don't ever hit a big shot. And therefore, we almost we almost screw up
1: our own lives because of something we've begun to believe is true. Right. I can't. In, in in high school, I dropped I was my my track team had won nine years in a row and we were at Kingwood High School, which is a juggernaut track and field Olympians. Uh, it was a uh, um, national champion, state champions. It was it was the real deal. Uh, I was anchoring the mile relay team and I've never even seen this done uh, up until now. I didn't, I didn't know this was possible, but I dropped the baton me and the mm-hmm. third leg fumbled the exchange. I dropped it and we lost the meet by one point. We lost the the I was in first place, went from first and hit the second guy's place, bounced up, hit him in the shin, rolls out to lane seven. Not that I still remember every single moment of this <laughs> 30 years later, um, 25 years later. But this haunting story, mm-hmm. when it's on the line, Deloney, you'll screw it up. And when I looked at my past, when somebody says, hey, I need somebody to get this report done, who will make this presentation? My instinct is to back up. Is to say, like, that's not for me, because I'm gonna drop it. I'm gonna screw it up. And it wasn't until uh just recently that I started saying, No, I dude, when I was 18 years old, I dropped a baton. That is not a is not the way John Deloney does life. Stop Mm -hmm. telling yourself that story, man. And that was me. I'd take ownership. I dude, I happened. I dropped that thing. I've hurt people. I've hurt people badly. I have to own that and then say, okay, what am I going to do next? Right? Right. And I've got to stop letting that story just rattle around in my head. And dude, we've got a million of those things, right? We all do.
0: You did such a great job to talking about loneliness and friends. Yeah. And, and I want to end today, you know, you, you, you hear so many leadership phrases, you know, leadership is lonely. It's lonely at the top all those things. You can't trust. man. You can't let people too close to you because right. they're going to be the ones that hurt you. Um, keep your, keep your enemies closest, but man, you need to keep people at arm's length. Uh, pastors definitely, oh, you know, man. you need to get in a small group. You need to get in a class, but then pastors isolate themselves because they don't want to expose their heart, expose their family, uh, live in that glass house deal. Talk to me about friends. Talk to me about the importance of people having friends and why that is so critical to
1: change in their future. It was what we were just talking about earlier about loneliness. And it's a, it's a brain thing. It's a body thing that when your body recognizes it's lonely, it's more damaging than smoking. Um, the the chemical cascade that your body kicks into gear when it recognizes, Hey, you're all you've got. You're alone out here. Um, whether you're alone behind a pulpit, you're alone in your, executive pastor office you're alone as on the road going to recruit some other knuckleheaded 17 year old that who knows what day it is right you got to pull him off video game control out of his hand just because he happens to run fast and catch a football the idea of being lonely um, lonely at the top is again what a ridiculous thing we've done to ourselves Mm -hmm. dude when you go to prison when they when you're in prison and you do something dumb there and they want to punish you there's not a lot they could do because you're already in jail they put you down in the hole. They isolate you. And there's many psychologists that are calling for after 13 or 14 years, I forgot the number, um, that with the World Health Organization to designate it as torture mm-hmm. because it psychologically unspools us. And, dude, that's how we have choose to live our lives. That's right. We do it to ourselves. What a bananas way to live. And so what I and again, dude, I've got friends who love me. Close, close friends, man. They would go to war with me. They would storm hell with me. But I cut myself off from them. I don't reach out. I get really busy. And instead of saying, hey, I need to go have some nachos and a drink and, with some guys and get off my little fancy diet for, for a night and just go laugh. I don't do that. And or I lead a, a Bible study and I put it under the I'm with people, but I'm not. That whole thing is at arm's length. You know what I mean? Um, When I do that, I am choosing to die young. I am choosing misery. And here's the big one. I'm choosing to ruin the lives of those who love me. Because here's why. 2019, um, a study came out that I thought was going to be what rattled America. Um, How naive I was, right? And I didn't know this other uh little thing was coming along in 2020 right but jama the journal of american medical association puts out a study that says that for the third year in a row this is this isn't a study as much as it's just reading the data the third year in a row the average life expectancy of an american citizen had gone down again and dude we put too much money in the system we have we have it too good right we've got even if you're if you're hungry there's you don't hear people starving to death in america yeah. right there's a soup kitchen like we have all the basic needs. What are, what's happening? And one great um, medical voice said, we, they called them diseases of despair. Hmm. And they're not murders and they're not, you know, uh, whatever is on the news. It was addiction, suicide, and organ disease failures, like heart disease, liver disease, uh, strokes. And then he put it another way. He said, we are lonelying ourselves to death. They wow. call it long tail suicide. I'm not pulling a trigger. I'm just putting in another Twinkie and I'm watching another Netflix show. I'm lonelying myself to death. And over time, I just want to be done because I'm tired. I'm just exhausted. And my kids come in and they see dad with his feet propped up on the couch and they know "Eh, I probably shouldn't mess with dad. And then they wonder, what is it about that TV show that's more lovable than me? Mm. And they set off on their journey forever trying to solve what was more important about work than me. What was more important, that stupid phone that he was always looking at? What was more important that, than me, his beautiful little daughter? And they will try to solve that for the rest of their lives. They will pass it on to their kids. And so at some point, I have to know the science behind it. I have to go make friends, people that I tell the good stuff to, the bad stuff to, the hard, the abuse. the stuff. There's stuff that happened to me as a kid that I will never write about publicly. I've got to make sure a couple people know that. Because grief demands a witness. I got to be able to say that. And then the fourth thing is, I got to have people that I do life with, that I have adventures with, that I say yes to things, right? I found myself in the middle of a mosh pit the other night at a Deftones concert. I hadn't been in one of those in 15 years. And I thought, I got to get out of my house and go be with other people. And a buddy's like, I'm going to the show tonight. So I went. And dude, my wife the next morning said, you are glowing. Like after a honeymoon glowing, what happened last night? And I was like, we got in a mosh pit and it was incredible. And by the way, I'm going to another show on Tuesday, right? I have to go be with other people and I've got to do it on the regular. Mm. And if they burn me, then, you know, I'm not going to put my hand back in the rattlesnake bag again, but I'm, I'm going to go find somebody else. And I have to make that a priority of my life. I have to, have to, have to.
0: And you hit this a lot with Carrie Newhoff in a great episode you guys did together it is a benefit to your marriage when you find those friends. It can benefit your marriage with your spouse. Why, why is that so? And parenting,
1: is, yeah, right? absolutely. The greatest gift I can give my kids is a picture of what adult friendship looks like. Most mm-hmm. of us don't have that. We don't even know what that means. Like I don't. I have pictures in my head of my dad going to help other people in crisis or to help them, you know, jack up a car in the driveway. I don't have pictures of my head just because men didn't do that back That's then. Right. That's right. Of four or five guys coming over just to shoot the crap in the garage. I don't have any pictures of that. So I've got to give that to my kids. So he, he understands when I'm an adult, this is what adult looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not sitting in front of a TV. It's going hunting with a group of guys. It is going to play church league basketball, even though my dad looks ridiculous and embarrasses the family <laughs> name when he tries to play. It is just having a group of guys that we go out with. And same with my wife. If I know that my brain as a lonely brain begins to see threats that aren't there and begins to get more cortisol and more adrenaline and more fight or flight spinning up spinning up i know i'm not a good husband when i'm like that because mm. nobody makes good choices when they're spun up and angry and frustrated and on edge and that means i'm not going to be a good husband and so the greatest gift i can give my wife is once a week to go hang out with a group of guys that we're going to do fun stuff we're going to do silly stuff now, listen, I've heard other guys be like, yeah, bro, we're going. That doesn't mean you go to the bar and have 14 beers and you yeah. come home an idiot and you snore all night like a moron. I'm saying you got to have a group of guys that you do stuff with. Maybe it's not every week. Maybe it's every two weeks. But that's a the greatest gift you can give your marriage. It's the greatest gift you can give your kids is to be able to be home and be fully present with a brain that's well. That's so good. So your parents do such a great job when you're little,
0: pouring a faith into you and they guided you. Your your mom points back and says, Man, I believe it because I choose to believe it. Yeah. Your dad gives you the grace to go go find go find your own faith. Don't yeah. don't rely on my church or my faith. Go find your own faith. At the end of John's days, your wife, your children is they look back one day at your faith and your children or your spouse, your beautiful wife's on a podcast with somebody and they're talking about you. What do you want them to say about your faith and how it touched them?
1: One of my favorite quotes is from the great theologian and songwriter, Rich Mullins, who said, we so often over-spiritualize Jesus and we turn him into a guy putting around on a cloud scooter and we lose the humanity and he goes on to say I'm really weary of people who say I do a thing and then I go do my ministry Mm. as though a ministry is separate and apart from who you are as you interact with the world ministry is flushing the toilet ministry is tipping really really well even when the service isn't great ministry is saying yes sir and no sir and being kind and yesterday we were my son and i were going for a run together and our neighbor had another heart attack and so i stood out there for 15 minutes in the heat and talked to him and as we started to go running i looked at my son and said he's not going to be with us much longer and i'm gonna give him 15 minutes of grace and my son Mm -hmm. said i know dad and so i want less pontification and i want my kids especially i want my wife to have seen that guy lived Jesus. He took what Jesus, the picture that Jesus gave us of a life well lived. He showed up in places where the church got mad at him for showing up. He lo- Everybody was welcome at the table. If you voted for Bernie Sanders or for Trump, everybody's welcome at Deloney's house. It was a place of hospitality, a place of laughter, a place of weeping and sharing grief together. But we lived it on, on the little things every day, day by day over a lifetime.
0: There are just some conversations that are just timely. This one was timely. I remember when we were beginning uh, the podcast and and dreaming of what could happen. I remember telling a group, I said, I just dreamed that if I could stick a microphone in a table and I am having a heart to heart with a great leader, I always wish others could listen in because the reality is I'm blessed because I've gotten to meet so many amazing people, but I never regurgitate it properly. But the podcast has allowed us an opportunity to truly sit a microphone down, capture it, and then share it. Dr. John Deloney hit me just at the right time and just at the right place. And I remember thinking, if nobody else hears it, this one was for me. And it was so good. Thank you so much, Dr. Deloney, for sharing with us, for being with us, and for the work you do with Ramsey Solutions on your podcast. And so we're going to have a link in our show notes for uh, his episodes along with his book, uh, Own Your Past, Change Your Future. I encourage you, I highly encourage every leader to go and get that book. Well, in our next episode, we continue with another incredible leader, Dr. Karen Gordon. Dr. Karen Gordon has written a book called The Three Chairs. It is a powerful, powerhouse book her and I get into a conversation and maybe just skim a little bit of the book. We're going to have her on again because it was so good talking about fear, talking about how to overcome fear and leadership and how we can end up sitting in the right chair. Her TED talk on the three chairs is a huge, huge success. And so, You're going to love Dr. Gordon. Well, once again, thanks for joining me today. If you get a chance, hit pause, go to iTunes or Spotify, leave a rating and review. That helps other people find their way to us. And definitely subscribe and share. Thanks again for joining me today. Now, go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you.